As a Black feminist cultural critic, I am committed to examining Black cultural expressions against dominant popular culture as a pedagogical location that articulates the politics of difference. In my current doctoral work, I explore the positioning of the Somali in the Canadian imaginary. More broadly, I examine the ways Somalis have appeared in the news as criminals or visuals of our slain bodies after we've encountered the police and the ethical concerns of news stories and a journalistic process that has roots and traditions from slavery. In part of my work, I trace the spread of criminalization through Black expressive culture by examining the positioning of the Somali rapper. Specifically, I explore the blurred lines between hip hop studies and global hip hop, that hip hop as Black culture and a culture of rebellion always has transcended the nation state and its fictional boundaries. Today, I'm offering some citations, notes, and texts, or texts and conversations I've been ruminating over in the last few months in my work. I've been thinking a lot about the positioning of the Somali rapper by globally revered artists like Drake and his identity formation, the hypervisibility of Somalis and news stories about crime, the heartbreak of Orson Shire that has discursively wandered its way into the work of Beyonce, and the disappearance of this demographic from broader cultural analysis and discourse. I've been thinking about the thread of logic around race, ethnicity, and identity formation in Canada and how it seeps its way into Black culture too through counter narratives by these artists. The intervention and cultural criticism of Trisha Rose, Amani Perry, Bell Hooks, Joan Morgan, Stuart Hall, Ronaldo Walcott, Robin D.G. Kelly, Michael Foreman, and their citational followings guide my thinking and intervention here. Using Toronto as a discursive space to think through Black diasporic cultural production and continuously exploring hip hop and Black culture's diasporic origins and ongoing wanderings. Here are some of my notes. In 2014, this, or sorry, in 2013, the Somali community was portrayed as responsible for Toronto's hidden drug community through Rob Ford's crack cocaine fiasco. One year later, Toronto-born rapper Aubrey Drake Graham referred to a growing Somali criminal archetype in a newly released single, Draft Day. Over a Lauryn Hill sample and for a little over four minutes, the rapper talks about a sudden rise to fame, from being an unrecognized local Toronto artist to achieving international cultural impact. The song details achieving loyalty from friends through, through, through this process with reference to friends who will take, take the fall for him, an implication we can assume of a loyal brotherhood that requires taking a risk with the legal system or their lives through an unspecified loss. By the second verse, Drake details a conversation with two hitmen who he instructs to not move forward with taking a hit for the rapper because of his fame. He raps, know some Somalis that say we got it wallahi, get us donuts and coffee, we'll wait for him in the lobby. And I gotta tell him chill, Sprite got me on payroll, let that man live. They say, okay, if you say so, see whatever I say though. The song was released the same year that East Africans, specifically from the Somali diaspora, plagued Toronto's growing homicide list, symptomatic of a gentrifying city pushing out the poor as it itched to become world-class. The release of Draft Day, which immediately garnered popularity in the rapper's home city for referring to one of the city's most visible diasporas, is part of a growing thread of constructing Somalis as Toronto's latest black criminal trope. Black masculine rap aesthetics. These ruptures in rap discourse would be what Trisha calls, or Trisha Rose calls, polyvocal conversations. 
Rap as a genre has framed inferential and, and overt transcripts of Black masculinity, tropes of Black men as failing, violent, powerful, particularly regarding the relationship with women. Through Black feminist genealogy, we understand cultural conditions of inner city communities have constructed a normative and cultural adaptation of street code and hyper-masculinity that we have seen as embodied in rap music. Rap music arguably has served as a place uh, or a space for identity formation of a particular archetypal Black masculine aesthetic, one in which the Black adolescent man is angry, sometimes violent, defiant and reverent towards authority. Bell Hooks and Amani Perry in 2004 contend in their own analysis of the relationship between Black masculinity and rap that the continuous objectification of Black men has led them to become feminized. Thus, Black men have embraced hypermasculinity as, as an effort to combat such notions. In order to achieve a particular type of hypermasculinity, rap artists use, utilize images, lyrics, narratives to create violent and misogynistic versions of themselves. This type of rap aesthetic, as per Robin D.G. Kelly in 1996, always includes a hypermasculinity that is mis misogynistic and homophobic. Rap is operated as a space to resist most dominant structures, especially concerning race and class. And as Trisha Rose reminds us, rap operates as a, as a space of counter-hegemonic discourse against dominant power structures. However, popular rap simultaneously acts negligently to other dominant structures such as heteropatriarchy, transphobia, homophobia, and others. The song Draft Day does, ju does just this while also presenting a militaristic dramatic feel, evoking a form of masculinity that embodies the imperialist settler colony the, the rapper is writing from. Three. Saif Musad, known by his stage name Saif, released the song and video, hashtag fuck your privilege in June 2020, in the wake of George Floyd's passing. The song addresses the essentialist nature of identity formation in Canada and its inability to place its intersectional identities. He sings, I tell them that I'm Muslim, they gon' think a nigga brown, African nigga, we kill the world with our sound. We're from the trenches and now the hottest nigga around, East African nigga, you know I'm black and I'm proud. Before calling himself anti-racist, against policing, all while standing on a bridge in New York. Through the spring of last year, I spoke with Saif and Mustafa the Poet, two leading members from Halal Gang, for interviews with CBC Arts and the London-based London magazine ID. Although the subjects of both interviews were focused on the artist's works and their creative processes, discussions about race, ethnicity, and cultural identity were evoked in our conversations. In my conversation with Saif about the lyric, he explained to me that the urge to address his identity as a Black Muslim from Africa stemmed from his experiences growing up in Esplanade, a downtown uh, Toronto housing project near St. Lawrence Market. For Saif, Mustafa, and many other Black Muslims from Africa, their intersectional identities have been rendered invisible in many ways. Throughout his childhood, Saif, Saif's Blackness was often questioned as a Muslim refugee from Eritrea, he tells me, leading to regular conversations dissecting his intersecting identities. Similarly, Mustafa the poet spoke to me about intra-Black tensions he felt growing up in Regent Park that was largely shaped around difference. Difference culturally, geographically, faith-based. The relations between the multiple Black diasporas in his community uh, weren't always connecting. What was causing these fr frictions among these Black diasporas? The question of 
who is Black enough as per the many different ethnic positions contributing to contemporary Black Canadian expressive culture, much like our neighborhoods, has always been a point of contestation for Black immigrants uh, in Canada. Caribbean, dias Caribbean diasporas here have also long endured questions of nativity, belonging, and accusations that Caribbean Blackness is taking up too much space. As per Walcott, the question of who speaks for whom has become central to how Blackness is articulated, a process which targets the most visible, surveilled, and criminalized. The chain of disappearance that renders Somali and other East African artists visible in Black Canadian cultural production, I believe, is largely shaped by logics around authentic Blackness. We can understand Drake's lyricism as framing and constructing of Somalis as criminal in the, in the production of his own authentic Blackness through his crafting of a Black masculine aesthetic that benefits from these young men from the hood and their criminalization. The work of hip hop ex executives we now know is in framing a particular narrative of authentic Blackness that is digestible for the masses and often relies on racist tropes and common sense fictions of Black people in the Americas. In 2003, Patrick Johnson examined authentic Blackness as a performance. The idea of performing Blackness is the work of individuals or groups who appropriate this racial signifier to define the boundaries of this category and to simultaneously exclude other individuals and groups. The deployment of, a, of an authentic version of Blackness requires the assumption of something opposite, something not Black enough. This chain of disappearance or exploitation of memory of the cultural contributions of one of Canada's most hyper-visible demographics is a result of a thread of logic about race, ethnicity, and Blackness in Canada that leads to the erasure of and a discourse about Somalis as authentically Black. I've been thinking a lot about the time Safe told me on the phone an hour after Megrib about what it's like running between, or what it was like running between Esplanade and Regent Park in the early 2000s. He tells me about how Smoke Dog and him made money how they would meet with their friends after a day's work at the UB, UBK Masjid for prayer, how they would swap and share clothing when they slept at one another's cribs. I've been thinking a lot about the intimacy of these young men, estranged from their homelands, part of their neighborhood and community, as well as their elders who hold different expectations for them, creating layers of displacement and isolation. I've been thinking about the intimacies that led to the formation of Halal Gang. Kaburu Macharia explores the Black diaspora not as a kinship or a frame of descent, but rather rooted in the erotic, in the erotic as a dissonant freedom-seeking intimacy. Arguing against the heteronormative framing of dispersal with, uh, with heterofuturity and that another Black diaspora is possible, Macharia works through a geohistorical range of archival works in friction of intimacy across the Black diaspora. To move away from the genealogical imperative, he figures this, the Black diaspora to be framed through proximity and rubbing, not through descent. Black diasporas speak past, over, and through each other, producing not a unified or unifying chorus, but dissonant voices that every so often come together in their shared quest for freedom. I deploy Kuguro's framing of Black diaspora here in my examination of the erotic connecting the different Black diasporas that make up Halal Gang. From Eritrea, Sudan, Somalia, Jamaica, and Trinidad and Tobago and others, in their production of a unified ensemble, in their formation of cultural production that is simultaneously rooted in difference. 
a difference in memory, history, routes, and roots. I've been thinking about Macharia's desire to move away from a genealogical imperative of diasporic kinship, how diaspora is understood through descent and geography. Macharia's framing of Black diaspora, Black diaspora as a dissonant freedom-seeking intimacy that is framed through proximity and rubbing. Proximity to one another in relation to exile, imperialism, colonialism, gentrification, and how their bodies move through a necropolitical settler state. Rubbing that, that instigates an immediate adjacency and, and contiguity. For both Safe and Mustafa in Esplanade and Regent Park, East Africans were not seen as black, black enough or authentically so. And that is precisely what united them. I'm interested in difference, not as a radical and unbridgeable separation, but rather difference that is positional, conditional and conjunctural. As per Stuart Hall, decoupling of, of ethnicity from the violence of the state is implicit. And I decouple ethnicity here from being equivalent to nationalism, racism, imperialism and the state. In his essay, Rhetorics of Blackness, Rhetorics of Belonging, Ronaldo Walcott deploys Stuart Hall's concept of difference through new ethnicities to produce complex positionalities, identifications, and intra-Black Creole identities in his exploration of the multiple forms of Black immigrants belonging to the Canadian nation state. Walcott writes against the social science logics of immigration in Canada as it produces an immigrant narrative of sameness, dislocation, and alienation. My work builds off of the arguments of Walcott in 1999 and Stuart Hall in 1988 to extend it to the wave of Black diasporic artists from the Horn of East, of East Africa who are contributing to contemporary Black diasporic expressive cultures. I consider the multiple histories and origins of Blackness and diaspora and within the nation state of Canada to avoid an essentializing nature of Blackness. I understand Blackness is both a category and a sign that carries histories of domination, resistance, and movement. It is continuously, as per Walcott, under construction. In the artwork for his recent track, War Baby, Puffy Ells offers an animation of a Black Jeep parked in the south side of Regent Park with deteriorating build buildings and destruction, uh, and destruction in clear view a reference to the rampant gentrification of the neighborhood since 2005. Above the Jeep and the tore down TCHC building, or TCHC buildings, is, this, is a flag for the Somali Republic, a deep sea blue with a grand white star, the five corners, or each of the five corners serving as a reference to the many contestant region, contested regions of our people. This work then becomes a response to the ramifications of British and French and uh, Italian colonialism, both here and there, a diasporic wandering for the young Somali rapper. Through War Baby, Puffy Ells is compelling the, listen, the listener to consider how gentrification, imperialism, colonialism, and poverty in the settler colonial state positions the Black Muslim refugee. For his fifth mixtape entitled What a Time to Be Alive, Drake collaborated with Atlanta-born uh, rapper Future and raps over a song called Grammys about the power of his cosign and his willingness to retract the support of a, uh, of a musician's career. Released in 2015, four years before calling himself a mixed race kid from Canada on the Grammy stage, he talks about pinning two rival rappers against each other if needed. I'm gonna actually just play this one because I'm not trying to wrap it all of this. 
These lyrics allegedly were a response to the call out of Drake by Mo G, a former member of Halal Gang who addressed the rapper on Instagram in 2015 in front of a Toronto community housing uh, TCHC sign on a Regent Park building. In the short video, Moji asked, uh, asked fans and Drake about the rapper's use of aesthetic sounds and slang developed by his collective while denying them real materialistic uh, material support. Moji pointed out the racial and class makeup of the members of Halal Gang, identifying the theft of their cultural contributions without payment or credit. Drake is evoking two, Somalis, uh, two Somali rappers in his verse on Grammys. The first is Moji. The second is Top Five, a young rapper from Jungle, uh, uh, also known as the Lawrence Heights neighborhood. Here we see how Drake positions two Somali rappers from two different hoods against one another in his attempt to assert his power and authenticity. What does it mean to map poor Black neighborhoods for the broader world that you have no current or historical proximity to? What does it mean to claim vulnerable spaces and people that you have no relation or commitment to? What is the material, social, political impacts of bringing more visibility to already hyper-surveilled and police locations in your identity formation? We might understand Drake's relationship with artists from Toronto's priority housing as a practice of cultural cartography, an unjust categorization of human hierarchy in relation to place, as, of, as it applies to the cartogra cartographic roles Catherine McKittrick explores in Demonic Grounds. That's if we understand Drake's positioning of himself through narratives, subjectivities, and stories that are not his own, but largely that of young Somalis from the hood. Drake borrows, steals, and then abandons through the process of repositioning himself through poor black migrants and refugees. The two neighborhoods that Moji and Top Five are from, Regent Park and uh, Jungle, alongside their collectives have formed real tensions in consequence of this moment and these lyrics. Uh, in 1997, Walcott wrote, Black diaspora cultures are most engaging and critically affirmative when the practices of reinvention are highlighted and displayed in a complex fashion. End quote. Hip hop culture blossoming from Canada is rooted in diasporic wanderings, tensions, and offers us a wealth of reflection, discussion, and debate in global hip hop studies. As Mark Campbell and Charity Marsh wrote in 2020, to think about hip hop cultures within Canada is to necessarily struggle with the problem of the nation as hip hop's fluid and diasporic nature troubles some of the routine ways in which we understand culture, nation, and art." End quote. Hip hop studies in Canada disrupts the, bound, the rigid boundaries of this discipline. Hip hop studies in Canada offers us then something beyond borders and a current imagined world. Thank you. Um, and I want to um, actually riff on, on some themes that are um, apparent in, in Afrosonic Life and in, in the book that's releasing next month um, that is making its rounds. So I'm going to talk a little bit and hopefully just only play a little tiny bit of music. Um, but of course, as I begin uh, my framing, I, I return to Sylvia Winter, which has been one of the most generative um, text and bodies of work that have helped me sort of move this idea along. Uh, in, 2000 and, in 2000, when she was being interviewed by David Scott, she said, there is always something else besides the dominant logic going on. And that something else constitutes another, but also transgressive ground of understanding. 
not simply a socio-demographic location, but the site both of a form of life and of possible critical interventions. And I, I use uh, this, this quote to help orient me to, to try to make sense of uh, a variety of uh, what I call Afrosonic innovation across the Black diaspora. So my investment then in the term sonic uh, is this is a way for me to um, inclusively work with a variety of sounds and sound making process uh, practices that are not limited to music. I, I feel I find that what when we limit our, the analysis to music, there's so many entanglements with industry that it it problematizes uh, and and tangles up the work a little bit. Um, so not just limited to music, but particularly. Uh, I, I attempt to widen the analysis beyond just market and exchange value music. So the term sonic in my work then uh, deploy is deployed as a way of becoming attentive to the sonar frequencies invented um, across a range um, of uh, instruments and practices. And, and, you know, some of them are not always audible to the human ear. So capturing the attention of the human ear is a central way in which the forced commodification of Africans uh, was interrupted. We think back to Aunt Hester's scream, if you that pivotal moment um, that um, shows up in, in both um, Fred Moulton's In the Break uh, and also um, Frederick Douglass's autobiography. Um, it's, you know, the human ear you know, capturing the attention of the human ear is a central way in which the forced commodification of Africans is interrupted and as a way to demonstrate one's humanity by seeking refuge within the frequencies available to the human ear. By focusing on innovations, so the second half of sonic in Afrosonic innovations, the continuous invention of sounds by Afro-Diasport people becomes central to how I want to think about moving beyond what is manufactured um, and focusing on what is invented and emitted within or without or or beyond the the industry and the infrastructure but always still in relation to people and to audiences sound in my work then exists uh, with or without the audibility of human ears but the sonic uh, is intimately related to the human senses but not necessarily human intelligibility the sonic is a more for me a more useful relation uh, in, in a project like Afrosonic Life, uh, not just because it's central to, uh, in, you know, not just because the centrality of human audibility, but also because the sonic um, is also a specific relation to the speed of sound waves. It illuminates uh, how time as speed is connected to what, what and how we hear. The movement of sound waves uh, at specific speeds centers a relation of time. For example, a sonic boom features sound that ranges beyond the human ear, reminding us of the correlation between time and sound, which is necessary for human audibility. This correlation of sound and time is at the heart of how the sonic operates in, in Afrosonic life, furthering this relationship to, to make movement a necessary coordinate in sonic innovations. So I'm not just looking at sound, but also looking about looking at movement. Audience participation and the physicality of sound and music making are inseparable aspects of sonic innovations in the African diaspora. Sonic innovations, as formulated throughout my project, then is you know are about the relations of recursive time 
of physicality of audiences and people in relation as stimulated by by the uh, musical technologies and and DJs um, in large part. These relations reoccur throughout various uh, sonic innovations, and uh, I won't get into all of them here, but I, I definitely want to, I will touch on uh, a little bit more than hip hop or a part of hip hop's offshoot when, we, when I talk a little bit about turntablism. But one place I, I definitely want to start is, is, is thinking about the sound system. Um, and the, some of the questions and statements that I have here are just uh, I, ideas and ways for me to that I pose to the audience to help think with and about uh, something more than just um, what we're sold as musical commodities or streamed as musical commodities. So for example, one of the main questions I, I wanna tackle and think about is how do we read hip hop without losing historical and aesthetic relations with black musical life? Um, music videos are, aren't, aren't super helpful. I'm trying to focus on sound and music. Um, black, black musical innovations uh, refute the dominance of ocular regimes of hierarchy. And I, and I, I place that statement there to help us um, think about what, what, the son, what the sonic offers us and what sonic uh, innovations um, provide in sort of the afterlife of slavery. And an unfinished sentence here, I would just say Afrosonic subjectivities exceed. And I, uh, you know, I can elaborate on what that might mean. Um, but I think there's multiple kinds of uh, answers or ends, multiple kinds of ends um, to that, uh, to that particular uh, sentence. So as I was, you know, trying to explain here, I'm interested in sound that's not necessarily intelligible. Uh, I'm also uh, wor working with multifaceted ways of multi-sensory relationships so that we're not thinking about sound in isolation, like the movement of bodies, the audiences, the call and response um, are also part of how uh, the main arguments in Afrosonic life are, are, are um, moved ahead. Um, so what is a sonic subjectivity in the work then it refers to one's heightened awareness of the ways in which sound is consciously prioritized, impacting one's perceptions, beliefs and actions. It is an understanding of one's social location and positioning as invested in sound in ways that mitigate the ocular metrics and racial schemas of Eurocentric life. Sonic subjectivities uh, operate as a specific awareness of sound and its relational existence to the visual assemblages of race. I build on Alexander Wahele's uh, sonic Afro-modernity with, um, quote, this, this is Wahele's words now, the subject as an indeterminate sonic opacity, end quote, which exists as a texture and as a vibe beyond intelligibility located in a sonorous, sensual pivoting on a multi-central multi-sensory uh, oral, oral, and kinesthetic relationality. For Wahili, uh, a, sonics, a subject of sonic Afro-modernity comes into being in the crevice made by the audiovisual disjuncture engendered by the phonograph, end quote. Extending Wahili's work um, beyond the phonograph to include the turntable, the mixtape, and the mixing board I posit that sonic subjectivities 
do not just lie at this disjuncture, but also are invented through the active manipulation of music technologies to exit the normative relations of Western music making and logic. Sonic subjectivities become possible in the space between the intended use and the actual misuse of sound technologies, both analog and digital. Audibility to the human ear is central to the leveraging uh, of technology to achieve another human modality that loosens the grasp of phenotypes and their accompany, accompanying social hierarchies. So, when I think about Afrosonic innovations, I immediately think about the ways in which linear time gets eroded. And I'm speaking specifically about the way that DJs work with records, um, audiences in improvised ways with um, live audiences in front of them. And, and when I say erodes linear time, I, I think about all of the different techniques that, that a DJ can do to a particular song, which it essentially unfinishes that song. One could never, um, one could never arrive at the end in the in the way that the end is is, is etched into a piece of vinyl at the end of a groove, um, or in, in which it's imagined that one will stop listening to some that particular song and move on to another song. So, in the work, then one of the pivots that I make moving from sound systems, and I'm thinking about sound systems uh, migrating to to Colombia. Um, to Cartagena, specifically on, on the Caribbean coast, migrating to the UK, migrating to places like Toronto and Miami and New York. I'm trying to think about the sound system as, as a kind of sonic epistem, as a, as a way of thinking about human subjectivity and how Black people and Black diasporic folk uh, think with music um, outside of particular racial logics. Um, so the sound system becomes kind of the base which uh, the, the thinking is built on. I'm scaffolding here, thinking about the turntable as a, as a as an instrument. Um, and I want to play this clip to talk just uh, real quick uh, for about 50 seconds. I'll play this clip and 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 talk a little bit about uh, the ways in which DJ Spooky would say records are notes, and and others might say the turntable is an instrument. And and I I throw these out because they, what they do is uh, for something like hip hop culture, it actually forces us to, to look away from, from the visual stimuli uh, often and focus on um, what kind of sonic techniques and innovations these DJs are, are developing with uh, these analog records. I want to stop there and, and let me just quickly return to where I was and, and talk a little bit about the turntable as instrument and, and what you're seeing on your screen are 
two DJ, two turntablists from the legendary X-Men crew. Um, and, uh, you know, who, who have been doing this um, for about 20 years now. And what you're seeing is, is, is at the heart of uh, what I call Af Afrosonic life, Afrosonic innovations. Um, they are extending this song, deconstructing all of the pieces. So they're literally decomposing the song and recomposing the song together. Um, and there is no end. They're unfinishing this song. They're opening up. So when I say Afrosonic innovations exceed, you know, they are exceeding all of the, the limitations placed upon the musical commodity embedded into, you know, encoded into, into these wax records. Now, Afrosonic innovations, they're, they're, they don't comfortably rest within the dominant cultural logic of Western societies. I, in, the, in the book, I argue that they are articulations of methods of Black life, ways to live beyond the structures of the governing racial logic. Many sonic innovations, such as scratching a record, so you saw lots of scratching there, for example, are illegible, right? Activities that cannot be read by the dominant logic as anything other than entertainment. The dominant logic in this particular scenario I'm, I'm going to name as Western European thought remains constrained by a theoretical apparatus generated by the practice, practice of transatlantic slavery and its need to cast human relations as property relations. These limitations mean a liberal humanist approach to re, uh, reproduces the social relations of its existence, guaranteeing a, guaranteeing a linear narrative of freedom in one's escape from being property. Afrosonic innovations imagined as forms, uh, imagined as forms of public nuisance and more recently commodified forms of entertainment fit neatly into concepts of property that cons constrain how the theoretical possibilities of sound in the African diaspora might be understood. So people, uh, people that would uh, be uncomfortable with this kind of turntables performance are interested in hearing the end of the song in the, in the way in which the song is produced as a commodity. And you know, at three minutes and 40 seconds, they're expecting to hear the end of the song or they want to hear the lyrics of the song. And, and for me, I argue that you know, the conditioning um, of the commodity and uh, sort of the property relations that structure our existence on this planet, uh, this side of the planet, um, hinder our ability to generate the kinds of analyses that I'm, I'm trying to push for in Afrosonic life. Liberal humanists is a system of understanding of, human, of the human condition as one imbued with autonomy and the freedom to author one's own life, history, meaning, and actions. Given the inherent analytical problems of liberal humanism, it's, for me, it's fruitful to analyze sonic innovations in the African diaspora using Waheli's notion of sonic Afro-modernity. Um, and that's really where I sort of um, state, put my stake in the ground and, and try to advance Wahili's uh, ideas there around sonic Afro-modernity. There, there's a couple other uh, Afrosonic innovations that I, I want to quickly touch on that um, in, in the time allotted, uh, I have a couple more minutes. And, and one of them is, is uh, the rhythm. And the rhythm is something that comes out of, of Jamaican sound system culture in the late 1950s. And it really is at the very beginning, an accident, right? It's an accidental uh, forgetting to put the vocals on top of an instrumental track and cutting a record. Um, and that was called a version. So you would literally have the beginning of, of, of um, 
the B side of records being pressed was the the finding out that audiences actually enjoyed the instrumental track and they would sing um, the track alongside uh, the instrumental, right? And the very first, I think, time in 1967 with the Paragons on the beach, they played the instrumental that they accidentally cut and the audiences wanted to hear it um, 30 times. So they ended up playing the record 30 times. There's, I think there's a significance there. But um, go, you know, moving towards the, the rhythm method, which um, is a way of thinking about how uh, specifically reggae and dancehall use instrumental rhythms or use backing rhythms and reuse them, right? Um, in, in the work, I'm, I, I play with this idea to think about versioning dub, dubs, remixing, covers, and mashups as ways to think about the multiple, right? Moving, moving out of the singular and thinking about multiplicity and the ways in which one deals with what are our paradigms and templates for dealing with multiplicity. So what is interesting about uh, rhythm science or rhythms in, in, in general um, is to think about how the, the, the understanding of sound structures people's behaviors in accepting sameness and difference. So, for example, the, the rhythm that I, I'm going to play for you is... Um... One of the rhythms that started the rhythm method. So that is just that is just the instrumental of uh, "Under Miss Langtang," which is uh, a song that the the first um, cop the first version of it was done by Wayne Smith, um, and and that was done in Prince Jammy Studio in in the in nineteen in the middle of the nineteen eighties. What's interesting though about it is that it was one Casio turntable, one Casio, uh, one Casio keyboard. Sorry, not a turntable. One Casio keyboard. Um, that helped that produced, you know, allowed for the production of more than 200 versions of this song. For example, the same rhythm uh, is, is um, it's, it's part of the canon now of the way in which exists. So that is uh, Sizzla featuring Garnet Silk, their version uh, on the rhythm on on, on the under Miss Langtang rhythm. This is Supercat's version. So those are just two of the uh, hundreds of versions of songs that use the same backing rhythm, right? Um, and the last one that I'm going to play for you is is what showed up in Toronto uh, by 87, 88, uh, using the same rhythm. Come in. 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 Come in.
So the the MC on that track, his name is Rumble, uh, um, another uh, Scarborough um, Scarborough resident, and he uh, and his partner Strong at the time recorded this uh, record, and and they worked closely with that with the producer uh, King Jammy, who originally was Prince Jammy, became King Jammy later, to um, to produce one of the earliest hip hop songs um recorded to vinyl in the, in in the Toronto hip hop scene in, in 1986 87ish now i i i i spend time here i think um trying to take in the rhythm method and thinking about what is the what is the science um and what is the what is it telling us for example and i trust the i trust the the sonic for because it's you know, I trust it as a transgressive ground of understanding, as as Winter um, suggests, um, offers the offers us that language. Um, it's critical in helping us grasp another form of logic uh, and other kinds of relationalities at work across the various sonic innovations. That uh, you know, I, I started with turntablism and sound systems, touching a little bit on rhythms, um, and and. And notice how I'm not working within musical genres, but I'm thinking more about these sonic innovations. Um, the constraints of Western thought had has us for for too long, obscuring the kinds of subjectivities birthed by Afrosonic innovations, um, because they lay beyond the bourgeoisie ideal of, of secular man. These innovations um, are experiments with sound that leverage generations of Afrosonic Afro diasporic orality to actively subvert sound technologies as ways to displace the African as a technology of colonial capital accumulation. Read that as a unit of labor. These innovations extend pleasure and black joy in ways that are multi-sensory, that are opaque, and which mitigate the biocentric nature of, of Europe's ocular obsession. In displacing the ocular as the central processing modality of Western human life, Afrosonic innovations foster possibilities of subjecthood that propose different ways to live as humans. A praxis that combines the ocular, kinesthetic, and sonic to creatively foster subjectivities often recalibrated in relation to man. The subjects created by sonic innovations are the something else, the more than man beyond the dominant disciplinary codes. And uh, you know they're not meant to be intelligible to us because they're not meant to be uh, i mean they they they're not they're, their desire is not to be intelligible right and necessarily a different set of metrics guides us beyond sort of idealized man's formation of the dominant code and i would argue that part of what guides is the sense of black joy um in in exploring a subjectivity that's not constrained by by racial logics and the hierarchies um, that accompany them. I want to end with uh, a reflection back 
in Toronto in, in hip hop of the, what you see as a cover from an album that was released in 2004 called Welcome to Planet Earth. Um, these three gentlemen uh, are from a, a larger crew called the Monolith Crew. And um, their Earth is, a, is, is an acronym for Instinctive Reaction to Struggle. So and when you see the cover of their album, there's something interesting about their work being having this kind of not just an outer national yearning, right, in, in the ways in which we think about diasporic connections and movement, but having this, this uh, sort of interplanetary imagination, right, um, that uses the music to propel um, futures otherwise. This is a new way of thinking with new philosophies. Linking our hope for how it ought to be. We've established a better system where the people live properly. Changing impossible to probably. It's flow mobility, flow mobility. So I want to stop there and thank you for um, entertaining us. And I'm looking forward to this conversation. But I do want to, what I want to leave you with from, from Urs's, uh, that one was called Tracks Lament was the multiple ways in which sonic innovations become this bedrock for imagining another kind of subjective um, subjecthood or subjectivity outside of maybe outside of the planet Earth, you know, in, in, in when you think about Afrofuturism and Parliament and George George Clinton, but also within the confines of, of um, a particular city like Toronto. So thank you. <laughs>